sacrifices. Some of you like to know, some of you write me from time to time, hey, an outline would help. I don't have much of an outline. The outline is the verse. First, this word in the verse, and then the next point of the outline will be that word in the verse, and the next point of the outline will be that word in the verse. So we're really, we're not going to get out of verse one. Um, You might wonder what we're doing Um, sermon-wise. We just had three weeks in Romans 6. Now we're in Romans 12, 1. What's the plan? There is no plan. The plan is, you ever been to the beach and you're watching birds hover out over, over the water and suddenly they dive and they come up with a catch? I'm just, I've just been hovering over Romans in my personal Bible reading, my personal devotion life, and every now and then there's one and I say, oh, I got to dive in that one. So that was chapter 6 for a while. Now today it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I just had to take a dive in these, so you're getting a bath with me in this part of God's Word. So the outline is the verse. And the first thing I want to talk about in the verse is the word, therefore. Can we have the verse again, please? 12, 1, thank you. I appeal to you or I exhort you, therefore, you know the overused, kind of goofy saying, whenever you come up to a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? And there for a good reason, and we need to notice the reason, Paul has just written the most amazing, the most astounding, the most stunning, the most profound and deep 11 chapters of spiritual truth. Such great chapters. Actually, the entire book, 16 chapters, that Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the entire book of Romans deserves to be memorized by every Christian. That's why I'm not in the Lutheran church. I don't know if I can pull that off. That's a lot of memorizing. No, I'd love to, but I haven't. The early church father, his name was Chrysostom. There were a number. We called them the fathers because they were the great leaders in the early church. Chrysostom had this uh, epistle, had various parts of the epistle read to him every day. He liked Romans so much. So Paul's just given us 11 stunning, weighty chapters of Bible doctrine and Bible truth. Like, really, like you get nowhere else in all of Scripture. 12, 11 chapters of sturdy stuff. And then he comes to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, therefore. So we are to understand that what we're about to hear in chapter 12 and everything that will follow it, not that we're going there in our sermons, but everything that, everything that follows is based upon, is rooted in the doctrine, the teaching of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. So here, let me give you a point and I'll put it up there. We should learn from that. I do have an outline. Look at this. Right living is always rooted in biblical doctrine. Starting in 12.1 and all the way down to 16, he's going to give us right living. But it's rooted in the first 11 chapters of biblical doctrine. There's a therefore that's like the fulcrum. It's the pivot point that brings us from the one, now you've got the doctrine, into the other. Now let me tell you what that means. 
Let me tell you what that demands of you as a child of God. Paul does this in Romans. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in Colossians. He lays down chapters of doctrine, and then he gives us the practice that is rooted in them. So Paul starts with a therefore. Notice also another word. Back to the verse, please. I appeal to you, or I exhort you, therefore, brothers... Who are the proper recipients of the 11 chapters of doctrine? And who are the proper recipients of the the following chapters of practice? In other words, are the 11 chapters of profound doctrine, are they aimed at the academy? Are, Are they for professors? Are they for those who write theology books, but not for the rank and file of God's people? Are they for pastors, but not for ordinary Christians like us? No. He says, those 11 chapters where I just laid down all that profound truth, they are there for anyone who is called brothers. Now, in that century, brothers was a generic term that encompassed men and women. Somehow. I don't know how they, but it did. And today, we might want to be a little more PC and say, that means brothers and sisters. It's not just that males are the proper recipients. It's males and females. It's all the blood-bought people of God. In other words, what I'm saying is, doctrine is important in your Christian life. Not just for professors. And there ought to be doctrine in our churches. There ought to be biblical teaching in our churches. There ought to be teaching the Word of God in our pulpit. So when you go out of here, you've got some Scripture on you. You've got some Word laid down on you. So Paul starts with this, therefore, to underscore the essential connection between Bible doctrine and Bible practice. Now let's go on in the verse, and I want you to note next, he says, I appeal to you, or better, I exhort you. I exhort you. So Paul is leaving off just teaching, and now he's starting messing. He wants to get into your life now. He's a shepherd. He wants to put his fingers down in your wool where the bugs are, where the wrinkles are, where all the ugly stuff is. He's leaving off teaching and he's taking on preaching. And he says, therefore, in light of that, I got some exhorting to do. Here's another statement for you. Put it up. Exhortations and commands are huge for followers of Christ. In other words, you don't want to be just doctrine. Some of you have that tendency. Some of you could be that. Man, I love learning. I love facts. I love information. I love Bible doctrine. Ooh, I'm learning doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Good, you should. But you stop there. Paul said, no, no, no. A well-rounded Christian doesn't stop there. You move from orthodoxy, what you know and believe, to orthopraxy, what you practice and do. Jesus Christ said, teach them to do all that I have commanded them. I was shocked when a friend of mine one day was telling me that his pastor, I know his pastor, a good friend of mine, his pastor doesn't do much application in his sermons, and my friend told me he thought that was so good. 
And I didn't say anything. I let it go by. Didn't think I'd make a big stinking point out of it, but I thought it was bad. Paul's got some exhortations for us, some things he wants us to do. In fact, in chapter 12, it's like a machine gun of exhortations. You've seen the predator? And Arnold's got that six-barreled Gatling gun type machine gun that goes, and when he's done, it keeps spinning for a while, and the trees are mowed down and so on. That, that's, that's Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Paul just gets out the machine gun and at the people of God. We're all like beat up with the, the weight of Scripture coming to us. So he's appealing to us. He's exhorting us, and we ought to love it to be so. You ought to come to church with a target on your brain. It says, right here, teach me. Put truth in my brain. You ought to come to church with a target on your heart. It says, right here, teach me to do all that Christ has commanded. That's a rounded Christian. I want both of those. Now, the next thing, he's going to give us what motivates us for all these appeals. He's going to bombard us with, I appeal to you, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's the basis for his appeal. There's what should motivate us to be moved by this appeal, by this exhortation. He says, it's coming to you by the mercies of God. Here, I'll give you a point. You want the outline? There really is an outline. Ha ha, I was kidding. Christians are powerfully motivated by God's mercy. It goes like this, God. You've been so good to me. Here, take my heart. You've been so merciful to an unworthy and undeserving sinner like me. Here, take my all. It's rooted, this command, this appeal, this exhortation is rooted in the mercies of God and we are people who are moved by that you're not moved by that I don't know do you even get the mercy of God do you even understand do you even grasp the wonder of the mercies of God just in case you're wondering what mercies Romans chapter 1 through 11 but especially at the end of 11 let me just take you back there for a minute I'll put the verses up for you and you can see them he says for Romans 11 30 through 31 for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. 11.32 For God has consigned all to disobedience. He allowed us all to fall. Why? that he may have mercy on all. And then these words close out that chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable 
his ways. So he ends the previous chapter with his mercies, his mercies, his mercies. And then he turns the page and starts chapter 12, verse 1, and says, so based on those mercies, I'm exhorting you. The exhortation is rooted in your grasp of the mercy of God. The greater your knowledge of what an undeserving, unworthy sinner you are, the greater your knowledge of the abundance of God's mercy you'll have, the more God's mercy will move you. Lord, you've been so good to me. Here, take, 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 take my all. That's, that's how Paul's arguing. This is his motivation. Now, I'm going to do something. I, I feel like you're tracking with me. I'm going to ruin the whole sermon right now. All right, you ready to see a perfectly good sermon getting ruined? Here it is. I'm going to take it aside, and just while I have this opportunity, and we're talking about how God's mercy motivates us, I want to take it aside and tell you there is a full range of biblical motivators, and you ought to appreciate all of them. You ought to take advantage of all of them, not just things like God's love, God's mercy. Now, what are the highest motivators? What are the most pure? What, is the mo what are the more lofty motivators? God's love, God's grace, God's goodness, God's mercy, surely. But it, it troubles me. I'll hear Christians say sometimes that other things that are in the Bible that are legitimate motivators are not proper for a new covenant child of God. So I'm going to take an aside for a minute while we're on what motivates us, God's mercy, don't lose where we are in the verse. And I want to talk, I want to remind you of some other biblically legitimate motivators. The, the first one I do not have on the slide because I came up with it after the slides were in. What do you all think of this as a motivator for doing the will of God, for serving God, for obeying God, for pleasing God? What do you think of self-interest? Is that a legitimate biblical motivator? What do you think? How many times does God say to Israel that it may be well with you? That's an appeal to self-interest. I want it to be well with me. That's a legitimate biblical motivator. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 6. Am I right? Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents, which is the first commandment with the promise. What's the promise? That it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. You want to have a well life? You want to live long? Do the will of God. That's a perfectly good motivator. I want a good life. That's good. That's biblical. You should use it. How about this for a motivator? I have this one on the screen for you. How about making someone else joyful? Is that a good reason to do things? Not just God's love, not just God's mercy, not just God's grace, but making another person joyful? Ha ha ha, you knew not to disagree because I got a scripture. In Philippians 2.1, Paul says, Fulfill my joy! Why should we do that, Paul? To make me happy. That's good biblical motivation. And it comes up again with reference to pastors in Hebrews 13, 7. It talks about how they shepherd your souls. And then it says, let them do this with 
joy. And not with groaning. You're all very good at this, by the way. Lots of joy, no groaning. Eh, Occasional groaning. Lots of joy. That's a perfectly biblical, legitimate motivator. Why should I do that? Because I want to make our pastors happy. I want to make their life joyful. How about this one? How many of you think this is a good, legitimate, biblical motivator that goes somewhere below my love for God, my apprehension of His mercy and His grace? How about avoiding poverty? Is that a good biblical motivator? Is it legit to be motivated by that? It is. You know, I have some verses. Look at Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. Good verse for your kids. Kid, you're headed for poverty. You're headed for shame. You're disdaining my correction. And I'm not just trying to correct you about this one thing. I'm trying to teach you a lifetime of receiving correction. You learn it here. This is the homeschool correctional facility. You learn it here. Here's another one about avoiding poverty, being a good motivator. Proverbs 6.26 For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. It, It ruined your life. It ruined your finances. It ruined your money. It ruined your marriage. It ruined your job. It ruined everything. And you're down to all I got anymore is a crust of bread. How did I get here? I used to have a lot. Guess what? It was the harlot. You don't want to be reduced to a loaf of bread? Let that motivate you. I don't want to be poor. That's why I'm doing this. That's a perfectly legitimate biblical motivator. How about, here's the one I was really eager to tell you. Don't forget where we are. We're in Romans 12, 1, going through words, and we're taking an aside. We're on the word mercy. We're motivated by God's mercy. But there are other biblically legitimate motivators in the Bible. And here's the one I really wanted to tell you about, because this is the one I hear lambasted by Christians. What do you think of being motivated by fear? Is that biblically legit, to be motivated by fear? You know I have a verse. It's about pastors. It's 1 Timothy 5.20, and it says about pastors, as for those who persist in sin, they just keep on, they won't stop. They're a pastor. They keep on. They won't, they won't stop. They're persisting in sin. Here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand fear. Fear. Motivation by fear has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. I've heard really eminent pastors say that, teach that, preach that. Wrong. It's right there in Scripture. You want to keep the church clean? Show people what happens when they're not clean. Show them how it gets publicly rebuked, that they all go, oh, I don't want to do what he's doing. So this was an aside. Oh, I have one more for you. I'm sorry, one more before we leave the aside. One final legit motivator. It's reputation. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. 
Why are you doing that? Because I don't want them to filch my name. I don't want my name to be dragged through the mud, so I'm not doing that. So the, the power of temptation, the power of sin is so great that to resist it, we need to take advantage of the full range of every biblically legitimate motivator God has given us. And if it comes all the way down from love and ends up at fear, and fear is the one that finally helps me, take it. Fear what that thing would do to you and say no to that temptation. So don't listen to people who tell you the only proper biblical motivation is love for God. Sounds very spiritual. But God wrote in his book about other motivators. Back to our verse. Let's put the verse up again, Romans 12.1. So Paul says, I, uh, I, I appeal to you, I exhort you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, now finally, here's the thing he wants us to do. What's Paul want you to do? Here's the first bullet out of his revolving six-barrel Gatlin gun type thing. And it says, present your bodies. Present them. Related to the word present. You give somebody a present. I presented it to them. It's presented. Take your body as a present. Present it up to God. God, I'm giving you my body because of your mercies because of the depth of mercy that you have poured out on me i present my body unto you here i'll put it in a statement for those of you who want something approximating an outline believers present their bodies as living sacrifices well i thought i had that apparently i don't my bad now this word Oh, there it is. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. And now go back to the verse again. Thank you. Now, this word present is the language of Old Testament sacrifice, where they presented a body unto God. Might have been a dove, might have been a goat, might have been some other animal, and they would present a body. To God. Old Testament sacrifices present bodies to God. And they all those sacrifices pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that would come. Now, New Covenant priests do some presenting. And they present bodies. Their own. You're the offering in the New Covenant. You're the thing that goes on the altar. You're the thing that gets presented unto God. So this language of present your bodies is old covenant sacrificial system terminology. Paul's already used it in Romans chapter 6. We were just in Romans chapter 6. Let me take you back there for a minute and show you how we already use this language twice in the book of Romans. 6.13 and 19 read 6.13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Next verse, next part. And your members, understood, present them to God as instruments for righteousness. 619. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So already in chapter 6, he had, you present, you present, you present your members, you present yourself. But now in 12.1, he brings up hard stop. Here's the first duty I really want to lay on you as a, as a Christian. Doesn't mean this is the first one in the Christian. It's the one he chooses, though. Based on all you just learned, based on all the mercies of God that you know about, here's the thing you need to do. You need to be a sacrifice and get on the altar and present yourself to God. Why does it say present your bodies? Well, A, because in the Old Testament they presented a body, though sometimes it was grain or something, too. But B, because it is usually in connection with something about our bodies that we transgress. Are you a liar? You lie with your body, your tongue. Are you a gossip? You lie, you gossip with your tongue. Are you a thief? You steal with your hands. Are you a fornicator? It's with your body. Do you fornicate with your eyes? It's with your body. Most of the things we do end up affecting our body. And so he's saying, you're an Old Testament sacrifice. Present a body to God, but it's the body that you would get entangled in sin. I want you laying it on the altar in front of the Holy Father. It's a, it's a holy offering. You present your body. And that means... Here I am, Lord. I'm yours. Take me. Have me. Have these hands. Have these eyes. Have this tongue. Have these feet. Have all my parts. Here, take me. I want them set apart unto you, Lord. This body that gets me into trouble. This body where the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Take this body. I present it unto you. Somebody asked the question, how often should we do that? The answer is not once. Right? The answer is as often as you need to. So probably what that means on most days is you get up, maybe you read some scripture and you had some prayer time and it's all doing pretty good and then you had a drive to work and you lost all your sanctification and already you have to represent your body. Then you get to work and you got to interact with that coworker, and now you have to represent your body and over and over and over back to you, Lord. Oh, wait, I'm yours. Here I am. Take me. Take my tongue. Take my lips. Take my thoughts. Take it all. I'm yours, Father. So how often? Over and over and over and over because I first heard this from Chuck Swindoll many years ago. What's the problem with living sacrifices? They keep crawling back off the altar. Put your body back on there. It crawls off again. Put your body back on there. Over. This is normal Christian living. If any of you are wondering, why do I have to do this over and over? Is there something wrong with me? You're right on track. This is the normal Christian life. All of us have to present our bodies over and over and over and over. Oh, wait a minute, I got off. Off the altar. Here, Lord, take me. Have me. This is the normal Christian life. So you are a sacrifice. And then Paul gives us 
four uh, descriptions of, four qualifiers for this sacrifice. I want you to notice them, and I've just put them in outline form for you, I think. Uh, they are, first, they are living, living sacrifices. That's in contrast to Old Testament sacrifices, which you killed first. But no, you're a living sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And over and over and over, you present your body to God, a living sacrifice. Young men, God wants you now while you're alive. Not wait until you're old and ancient and decrepit and can't get out of your bed and can't eat and can't think anymore and can't do anything. Then I'll give my body to God. Now, he wants it while it's living. He wants it now. Young women of the church, you are to present yourselves to God now as living sacrifices. Right now, that body, this day, so that your life is his. You can say, for me to live is Christ. To die, well, that's just gain. Gain. So there are living sacrifices. Then he also says in the verse, they are holy sacrifices. Now, you probably know the word holy in the Bible doesn't mean It simply means set apart. So there are the things that are the muck of the world, and here are the things that are set apart to God. You are to present your body a holy sacrifice. Lord, this is set apart to you. This is unto you. This is for you. This is in relationship with you. It is to be a holy lifestyle and a holy body. And a third qualifier, they are called pleasing sacrifices. This was an Old Testament theme. The sacrifice on the altar is burned and the smoke rises into the nostrils of God. A sweet aroma. Your life is to be a sweet aroma. All around us there are people whose lives are a stench. Your life is to be continually offered back to God. And he goes, ah, heartland, sweet. Ah, Biondo, sweet. Ah, Carter, sweet. I'm sitting there. And a fourth qualifier for the sacrifices, he calls them reasonable sacrifices. Go back to the verse real quick. Would you please, Jonathan? I want us to see that. Uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Next verse, next part of it. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your, this version ESV has, which is your spiritual worship. But the word is, I think it's, if I remember right, it's like logikon. You hear logic in it? It means you're reasonable. In other words, you say, isn't that asking a lot? Isn't God asking a lot? I'm supposed to give him my body and all my members and my all and present and present and present myself. And I'm supposed to be a holy. Isn't he asking for a lot? No, it's perfectly reasonable. He made you. He redeemed you. He bought you by the blood of Christ. You are his. Now present to him what he purchased. It's reasonable. Anything else is completely and utterly unreasonable. Living life in any other way is completely unreasonable. 
There's a great being who made you. You are made to live in fellowship and communion and love with him. Any other life is unreasonable. So, this is the start of what Paul wants Christians to do. Romans 12.1 Present yourself to God. Some of you who are listening in this room and some of you who are listening elsewhere are not yet Christians. Bless you. We're so glad you're with us. Thank you for tuning in today. And uh, you might be wondering, you're looking in thinking, maybe I should become a Christian, but I don't know what all that would mean. What would it do to my life? What would have to change? And so you're wondering these things. Here's a good answer for you. It will change absolutely everything. Because God will become your God. Jesus Christ will become your Lord. His word, his commands will become your pleasure and your delight. And you will daily, over and over and over, present yourself to him. Here I am, God. Have me. I'm yours. Before you come to Jesus Christ, your entire life before, you never did that once. Here I am, God. I'm yours. I didn't. I was 17 years old before I heard the gospel. Never once did I say, here I am, God. I'm yours. 17 years old, heard the gospel, haven't stopped. Here I am, God. I'm yours. That's something that will happen to you if you become a follower of Jesus Christ. God will change you, and you'll be presenting and presenting and presenting. In other words, somebody, many people have said, salvation is free. It's a gift purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no cost. Following Jesus Christ costs everything. He takes everything. I want you. You're now set apart to me. You're mine. So, to believers, think with yourself, I belong to God. I need to just keep presenting and presenting and presenting and presenting myself to him. There was a philosopher, pagan philosopher, Epictetus. What a name, Epictetus. Mothers, do not name your sons Epictetus. But he gave this precept to his disciples. Quote, Think within yourself, upon all occasions, I am a philosopher. Romans 12, 1 is better. Think within yourself upon all occasions. I am a child of the living God, set apart to him, and I offer him my all. So, Romans 12, 1. Can we do 12, 2 next week? Anybody want to do 12, 2? Laban's been telling me to do the whole book. I did that once. It took two years and seven months. How to empty a church. I shouldn't be joking around here. We should be praying. Praying. Praying based on that message. Would you bow and pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we are, we are looking up to you. There is no other. 
none that we desire as we desire you, none that we want to serve as we want to serve you. Thank you for this little verse we've been looking at today, and we pray that it would be like an arrow and it would find its mark in our hearts. Pray that every person in this room, every person hearing this message would be moved by your Holy Spirit to say, Father, take me. A living sacrifice, holy, set apart. It's only reasonable. You people who are in this room and those of you who are listening elsewhere, maybe you know you've been messing with things that aren't so set apart. Maybe you've been allowing some stuff and making some excuses. Maybe the Holy Spirit's tapping you on your shoulder saying, all right, time to offer up your body as a living sacrifice to God and keep offering and offering and offering. Yeah. A holy one, one who is set apart. Right now is a good time, my brother. Right now is a good time, my sister. God's dealing with your heart. Father, we pray that Cornerstone Church would be filled with people, more and more people who will find life in Jesus Christ and who will live as sacrifices on your altar. Pray in the name of Jesus.